According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, older adults lost over a billion dollars to financial scams in 2020. When considering other indirect costs of scams, estimates swell to over $3 billion in losses to the U.S. economy. In 2020, more than 100,000 older Americans were duped by a scam at an average cost of $9,000. And more than 2,000 individuals had more than $100,000 stolen. We now live in a world dependent on technology that has fundamentally changed how we interact with others. Just like any other American, older adults now communicate over social media and by email. They find partners online. They use web-based interfaces for banking and managing their finances and much more. Older adults are known to be at particularly high risk for financial scams. According to the FBI, older Americans are the group most often targeted with the highest number of fraud cases occurring in Florida, California, and Texas. Such schemes can appear as tech fraud support, lottery or sweepstakes scams, or even romantic plots. Many older Americans are retired and are living on savings that have been accrued over a lifetime that make fallout of being victim to a scam particularly devastating. Now, it's not a stretch to imagine that older Americans living with a cognitive limitation could be even more vulnerable to being taken advantage of by fraudsters. In this episode, we'll speak with a researcher who's been out in front of this. We'll discuss what's known about cognitive impairment and susceptibility to financial scams. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. Today, we're joined by Dr. Duke Hahn. Dr. Hahn is a director of neuropsychology in the Department of Family Medicine and a professor of family medicine, neurology, psychology, and gerontology at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. Hahn's research focuses on factors that affect cognition and decision-making in aging. His work has used several novel neural imaging and statistical approaches to better understand these factors. He's here today, though, to talk with us about some of his own research on cognitive impairment and susceptibility to financial scams. Duke, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Matt and Donovan. I think the podcast is great, and I hope more people listen to it. So to start things off, what are some examples of financial scams that are out there today? So you, in your introduction, you already mentioned uh, a few that are, are common. Uh, there are, uh, among older adults in particular, there are telephone scams where people will pose as the IRS or federal government officials and try and steal uh, identifying information or bank information or passwords or um, have the older adult send money using gift cards or um, some other um, uh, money um, uh, transportation or money uh, um uh, delivery service. And so uh, older adults are also uh, seem to be more susceptible to post mail, um, actual um, physical mail scams. And so these are uh, letters that are, are sent to older adults in their mailboxes, where they pose as a psychic or a religious cleric and try to promise uh, some sort of good outcome for a check in return. And uh, one famous case of this is uh, Marie Duval, um, which made headlines because she had an enterprise that uh, was international and actually scammed a number of older adults. Um, the vast majority of the people that she scammed were older adults. 
and uh, and uh, she was brought to justice actually. And so uh, the scope of that um, scam, uh, once that came to light, that was uh, pretty shocking. Um, older adults also are susceptible to a particular scam that's referred to as the grandparent scam. Uh, and this is a particularly egregious one where um, uh, someone will pose as a uh, police officer from another country and say their um, grandchild is in prison and they need to send money right away to bail them out or otherwise they're they're going to languish in their international prison. And so um, so this particular scam is one that that draws upon the love of older adults for their uh, grandchildren. And uh, it's uh, it, it's a particularly uh, devastating one. Um, and as you mentioned, that we right now are more dependent on uh, the internet. We're more dependent on computer systems to uh, maintain communication because of the pandemic. And so internet scans have been a huge um, area of uh, fraud among older adults. And uh, uh, along with that, there's phishing emails, uh, pop-up windows on uh, websites that demand uh, people enter in their uh, personal information and um, uh, you know, many of that, uh, many of those things lead to ransomware. So, um, and then uh, you know, the older adults have to pay money for uh, to get control back of their uh, computer. So, uh, these are just some uh, common examples of financial scams among older adults right now. So, I was curious, like when you talk about scams, you know, the first things that come to mind are these systematic things that are targeting groups, like some of the ones you just described. Do people consider kind of scams or fraud like within families? Like, I mean loved ones or family members or friends kind of taking advantage as well? Yes. Yeah, we absolutely consider that. And in, in fact, uh, we had a study from our laboratory recently that uh, looked at calls to the National Center on Elder Abuse. And so the National Center on Elder Abuse is right across the hallway for me. Uh, they have a, a resource line where people um, can call and, and get information about uh, abuse and how to address abuse. Uh, we did a, a study of the call of calls to that uh, resource line over a span of, uh, um, uh, of a couple of years and uh, basically have found that um, scam and fraud among family members was one of the most common um, instances that was reported to that line. Is it possible to give a sense of sort of out of the, the universe of financial scam, I guess, perpetrated on older adults, like what proportion is kind of friends and family versus these other more just like random online targeting? So that's, that's a great question that we don't have exact data on. Uh, based on our individual study, uh, that was actually the vast majority of reported uh, scam and fraud was among uh, family members, actually. Um, but because uh, the scope of uh, stranger fraud is so big, it's hard to really get a sense of uh, a comparison between those two. Um, and so I, I have... Um, friends and colleagues that are actively trying to get a better handle on that. But I, the one aspect of this area of study, I will say, is that there's not a lot of really great data out there about it. That older adults are reluctant to report when they're scam or frauded. There's a, a sense of embarrassment. Um, and one of the things that we are trying to get out there is that very, very bright people can unfortunately become uh, the victims of scammer fraud and it's not necessarily the the fault of the older adult it's it could be other reasons like in the case of a family member or caregiver um and we're our hope is that um 
as older adults may become less embarrassed by um, being involved in something like this, that there would be more of a uh, an encouragement to report it uh, so that we can get better um, data and a better sense on how big the problem is. Our sense, uh, so there are prevalence studies of um, financial uh, exploitation among older adults, and the prevalence studies have said that it's a, it's it seems to be about five percent of the population that experiences. It. But many of us who study this problem think it's actually much bigger, um, just because of the uh, reluctance in reporting um, that um, can happen because of the embarrassment of being involved in something like this. And I would think there you'd be particularly reluctant to report if it was a family member. So I would think that there's as much underreporting as there is, it'd be even more if, if it was family. I, and I think that that's um, absolutely a logical sentiment. And that's part of the reason why when we did our study of the National Center on Elder Abuse um, uh, calls, we were surprised actually how uh, far and away uh, much more prevalent the reporting was of family members being involved in that in financial abuse in particular what about um i mean you touched on some of this already but why why older adults like what what makes them more susceptible to scams and why are they often a target in some of these yeah and i think this is a very important and necessary question to address so i i first need to make very clear that not all older adults are going to be susceptible to scammer fraud we really are talking about a portion of older adults and so uh, there may be a, 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 an ageist perspective in this that, you know, as people get older, they're automatically going to be um, or that we're automatically going to be um, more susceptible. But that's absolutely not what we're finding or what we're saying. There's actually a number of studies that show that um, age is not necessarily on its own the factor that makes a particular older adult susceptible to scam or fraud. Um, we've also talked about the examples of family members or caregivers being involved in this. And so in that sense, really the blame is on the family member or caregiver. Um, and, and so uh, that being said, uh, we do believe that some older adults may be susceptible or vulnerable to financial exploitation. And the reasons are really, uh, I've, I've, as I've been doing this work for, um, you know, coming on uh, 10, 15 years now, I, I'm starting to appreciate that the vast um, many reasons why particular older adults in particular situations might be vulnerable to scam or fraud. Um, so uh, we've talked about cognitive impairment a little bit. So as an, an older adult becomes cognitively impaired, our research um, and research with the Alzheimer's uh, uh, Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center has found that uh, people with mild cognitive impairment, for example, that they do tend to be more susceptible to scam or fraud. They tend to make uh, poor financial decisions uh, on, on a whole. Um, and that's adjusting for age, education, sex, and, um, and, uh, and cognitive ability in, um, in some cases. Um, and so, uh, so for, um, uh, we do find that if someone's experiencing uh, cognitive impairment, um, that they may be more susceptible to scam or fraud. Um, I will say that uh, in addition to cognitive impairment, uh, there are other reasons why certain older adults might be more vulnerable. Um, in the field, uh, it's often talked about that social isolation is one of the um, strongest risk factors for abuse. Um, so if an older adult is socially isolated um, and they're, uh, they might be feeling lonely, um, they might be more uh, open to interacting with someone that might be 
scamming or defrauding them. Um, we also have found in our, our uh, laboratory research is that older adults who report a financial exploitation experience um, also seem to be more frail. They rate higher on a frailty index. Um, and in particular, on one study, we found that uh, older adults who have hearing and vision problems, um, who seem to have poor hearing and vision, um, seem to also, um, uh, that seems to be more highly reported among older adults who've been scammed or frauded. And that, that makes sense. If someone um, has a poor vision, poor hearing, they may not be um, able to sense when uh, a scam or fraud is happening or pick up on clues that might uh, indicate that it's a scam or fraud. Um, and along those lines, I, we think that older adults who have just poorer health are going to be more vulnerable because they're more dependent on other people. And if uh, older adults have to be dependent on others, um, that creates a an environment where an older adult may become uh, the victim of scammer fraud. I'm going to jump out of order here just a minute, Matt, because Duke was touching on one of the questions we had later, sort of getting at, in addition to cognition, what are other factors that seem to be uh, say increased susceptibility, uh, to fraud that you just touched on a couple, I guess I also wonder about, um, more like personality based traits, you know, like if you're more, I don't know, introverted, I guess, are there, are there other facets that seem to influence susceptibility? Like trusting personality types or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And it's actually one of the most common questions I get when I give talks on this topic. Um, I can share with you when we've looked at personality in the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center data, um, and their data is uh, is vast. I, I mean, it's they're huge numbers of people, and uh, they are incredibly well characterized on, from a cognitive and personality standpoint. Uh, we've looked at things like introversion, um, extroversion, um, neuroticism, uh, these personality characteristics that you might assume might have an impact. And in general, so far, we haven't seen much impact from those things, actually. Um, so I, it makes sense that that might be the case. But um, honestly, we haven't been seeing it bear out in our data yet. Um, that might change, obviously, as other groups start to study this or start to study this in different ways. But so far, personality doesn't seem to be as big of a factor as some of these other factors I mentioned. So things like health, cognitive impairment, um, you know, we think the more dependent older adults might be on others in whatever way that might manifest, that that might create an environment where uh, exploitation might happen. Okay, now I'm going to jump to the question that I should have asked next, which was, uh, if you think about kind of like the natural history of a financial scam, um, how do they usually end? Like how, for a given individual, what's the end point? What makes it stop? So, I wish I could say that... Um, each experience of exploitation ends in a good way where the legal system, you know, takes the um, scammer to task. Um, honestly, uh, based on the majority of cases that we've, we've seen, uh, because of the lack of reporting, often nothing happens. And I, I'm, I'm sad to say that, but it is generally, I think, more true than not. Uh, that being said, I, you know, the legal systems and the governmental systems are great to try to pursue uh, situations um, that are particularly egregious or that have affected a lot of, of older adults. Um, and uh, there's lots of reporting uh, resources um, that are, are funded by the government. 
that uh, allow people to report when they've been the victim of scammer fraud. And um, and so uh, in many of these cases, when they are reported, when enough people report, um, or if, uh, if there's a particularly uh, very good case um, of where someone was just egregious in what they did, then uh, then local authorities will try and uh, prosecute that and bring it to justice. And actually, um, uh, I will say that uh, you know many people think, well, they might not be able to ever get back their money anyway. So what's the point? And in many of these cases, they are able to get something back, actually. So, um, so just a, a general encouragement for older adults that might be listening. Um, you know, please consider reporting. Um, there's lots of uh, ways to report. You could report anonymously um, if you would like. Um, the more that people are willing to bring this forward, the more that uh, something can be done. With it. This isn't a legal podcast, but it's got to be tricky, right? I mean, some of these are probably from overseas, and I mean. Mm -hmm laws have boundaries and states and nations and stuff. So is that part of the issues with the legal stuff in terms of actually getting money back and that kind of stuff? Uh, I believe that's part of it. Uh, and I, uh, the legal side of this is not something that I, I know much about. Um, and I, I don't, I can't really speak on whether, you know, what, what causes a, a district attorney to prosecute, for example, or uh, to go after, um, you know, some cases versus others, but I I think one thing is clear: if people just if, if people don't report it, nothing can be done about it. So it, it really just takes that first step to be proactive and and try to get something done. About it. Um, and I think you know it's not just for the sake of the particular older adult involved. It's it's really for all of us actually, because uh, if you think about it, it's you know the the burden is is not on, only on the older adult; it's on everyone because of the effect on on society. So many of our listeners are researchers out there. And um, one of the questions I had about your research, I know you've looked at susceptibility to scams. So from a research perspective, how, how exactly do you measure scam susceptibility? So I, I think this is a really important question that's still being worked on right now. Um, how we have done it is uh, we, there, there was a susceptibility to scam scale that was developed by Dr. Patricia Boyle at the Russian Alzheimer's Disease Center. And that scale was developed um, based on interviews that the AARP and the FINRA organization did of older adults who had been scammed or frauded. Um, so it's a five-item five scale. And um, just to give you an example, the first item is I will answer the, the phone even if I do not know who is calling. So if an older adult rates that item highly, you might imagine that they might be more susceptible to scam or fraud. Um, and so that uh, that measure is out there. It's a five item scale. It's uh, the items are um, have been published. Um, and then I, how we're doing it at USC is that we're actually actively interviewing um, people who have who have reported at financial exploitation experiences. So we are working with with a qualitative researcher uh, to interview every every person that has reported an instance of this just so that we could get a better handle on how to assess for it. And the idea the the goal one of the goals of that is to try to develop better ways to assess for vulnerability in the future um other colleagues uh, of mine actually um uh, dr um, peter lichtenberg who's not far from uh, you all in uh, michigan he's in detroit at wayne state uh, has developed a number of scales of um what what he is calling financial capacity and how you develop um, and how how you can measure that in older adults um, and those are, those scales are freely available online as well. 
one of the last times that I spoke to my mom, she was telling me about how the phone rang. It's not a number she knew. She answered it. She like knew that this person was trying to sell her something or scam her something. And she was like explaining to me how she like, you know, basically was like, I knew what they were up to. And I was like challenging them on the phone. And I was like, mom, just don't talk to them. You're wasting your time. So, but anyways, I have like a personal experience with uh, family members dealing with calls like that. Yes. Uh, yeah. We, we generally um, advise people just to not respond or, or, or just hang up. Um, uh, we do have some uh, people that we work with, uh, some older adults that, that have engaged, like, like you just shared. And, um, and as long as people are safe about it and they know, you know, that what, that, uh, what's going on, uh, you know, it's, uh, whatever, uh, people are comfortable with. Do, do, do not call lists help at all? Uh, do not call lists. I think, I believe help any sort of, um, any sort of method where you can get people to not, um, call, <laughs> I think, um, will help. And so, uh, you know, um, phone and mail are far and away at, at this point in time, uh, you know, we've mentioned internet, but far, but phone and mail far and away are still among older adults in particular, um, the way the the most popular ways that uh, older adults are standard funded, uh, from strangers in particular. So, um, so the less that people answer their phone or, um, you know, respond to, uh, mail, I think, um, in, in my respects or in what we studied, <laughs> yeah, for what we study, it's, it's probably for the best. If we can just take a, a brief detour and, you know, this might be my uh, own uh, ignorance about the research in this area. This seems a little bit like uh, maybe an unconventional research area or, or I don't know, maybe that's less the case now than when you got started 10 or 15 years ago. How did you actually get into this area as, as your area of focus, Duke? Yeah, I, I, so this is a really interesting question. And I, I always start off uh, when I give a talk on this topic with the reasons, because I I think I can understand why uh, someone would think this is a, a bit of an atypical topic uh, to study, particularly for a health researcher. Um, I actually, this came, this started from um, experiences in my clinic. Um, so as a clinical neuropsychologist, I have been trained uh, to do cognitive assessments of patients um, for, uh, to assist with um, diagnosis and treatment planning. And uh, I have focused on older adults and preclinical Alzheimer's disease all my career. Um, and I started receiving uh, referrals for patients uh, for cognitive assessment for probable dementia uh, because it was discovered by either their healthcare provider or a family member or someone else that they were giving away large sums of money. And uh, this was a new change in behavior. This was not something they did before. Um, but all of a sudden, they were giving away large sums of money, either to, um, you know, potential romantic interests or, um, you know, other sorts of uh, organizations. Um, it, this was a change of behavior. And so uh, I would do a, a full cognitive assessment. And in many cases, I would do many hours of testing, cognitive testing um, for um, a dementia, uh, you know, probable diagnosis. And time and time again, case after case, back to back, um, these older adults tested normal. There was no cognitive impairment at all, but there was a clear change in behavior. And um, this was something that um, was really uh, curious to me. It um, was frustrating to uh, family members if they, you know, um, brought uh, these patients forward. 
um, you know, the, the referring doctors were confused by it. And, um, you know, honestly, often the patients were um, happy with the result because they could keep doing what they were doing, um, or at least that was a presumption. So, um, so this got me thinking, there's, there's a clear change of behavior. It's not every older adult where we're seeing this. Um, and so there must be some other explanation. And so this, uh, around this time, there was a New York Times article uh, that came out um, that just used anecdotes um, from um, Alzheimer's patients and their families. And their families reported that changes in the way that uh, the dementia patients that went on to, to develop dementia, that changes in uh, financial handling was one of the first signs of the dementia. It was, it was that and it was not memory impairment or not cognitive impairment. Um, and so, uh, so this got a number of us thinking. Uh, I was a part of the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center at the time, and it was just a really curious set of, you know, clinical and uh, potential research questions that converge into a program of research of trying to understand what makes particular older adults more susceptible to scammer fraud. Um, and I, if you, I, if you interview me, you know, uh, 20 years ago, there'd be no way I would have told you that I would have, I guess that I'd be studying this as my career, but it has been my career. And, um, and since that time, a number of us in the field have uh, focused on this topic. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly complex topic. And we do believe actually that, um, or at least a number of us do believe that uh, changes in financial handling might be one of the earliest signs of, of dementia down the road even ahead of any sort of noticeable cognitive or memory impairment. Um, and our research, uh, our lab has been focusing on this. We have a grant um, to study this right now, actually in uh, non-cognitive impaired older adults that we're following longitudinally. Um, we're following a set of older adults who have been the victims of financial exploitation and comparing them to a set of older adults who have not been and seeing if we can um, look and find um, signs of potential Alzheimer's disease or dementia um, that might be happening um, as, as we follow these uh, participants over the next few years. For those folks that you mentioned seeing clinically, um, do you have any longitudinal data on any of them? Like, do you know if any of them went on to develop dementia? Uh, I do not, unfortunately. Yeah, that would be a great question. Um, and uh, and since I've, I, I have now uh, I've taken a step back from clinical work, so I don't do as many uh, clinical evaluations as I, I, I used to. So that would be a great question to see. Um, we do believe that it could be one of the earliest functional signs of Alzheimer's disease. And so that would be a great um, uh, question to ask of these patients over time. That is sort of flipping things around and we're, we're sort of thinking about like, you know, people that have a cognitive limitation or issue being vulnerable, but flipping that whole thing around, it kind of like, it does make you wonder about the causation, you know, I mean, are the people from your perspective, people that, that may be victim to a scam or something kind of before a formal diagnosis, have they just gone undiagnosed, do you think? Or is it some other kind of more precursor in the development towards dementia? So, so we think that they, um, that at least some older adults who have been the victims of scam or fraud 
um, may be having early brain changes in particular areas of the brain that are more susceptible to age-related neuropathology, such as amyloid plaques and tangle pathology, um, and that the functional um, changes um, that that uh, are implied by uh, this financial change in financial capacity or financial handling um, are uh, because of these early brain changes. And so uh, a lot of our published work to date uh, has been in non-demented older adults, but showing that there are particular uh, brain imaging metrics uh, in very specific brain regions that, that we know are susceptible to age-related neuropathology. And, uh, and so these are, again, non-demented older adults. Uh, but just to really drive this home and make it clear, you know, one of our published studies, we uh, used this susceptibility scans measure that was developed by Patricia Boyle and looked in uh, over 300 non-demented older adults and found, uh, these are non-demented older adults, but we found less gray matter density in the right hippocampus, uh, corresponding with greater susceptibility to scam or fraud. Um, so again, this is um, non-demented older adults adjusting for age, education, sex, and cognitive ability. So we're adjusting for cognitive ability. Um, and we're seeing less gray matter density in the hippocampus, which we know is susceptible to age-related neuropathology, being associated with greater susceptibility to scammer fraud. And so um, this is one study to support this idea of why we think um, changes in financial handling might be one of the earliest signs of Alzheimer's disease. And We've since developed this idea um, because uh, um, because of the default mode network and the, and the nodes of the default mode network, which we know again are susceptible to age-related or pathology. Um, the uh, posterior part of the default mode network is is um, the area; those are the areas that tend to decline in the context of Alzheimer's disease, um, and those are the areas that correspond with things like episodic memory decline. Uh, so that model is very well worked out. It's at many of the Alzheimer's conferences, you know, uh, it's presented on. But what's interesting is that the anterior part of that network, the frontal, the medial frontal cortex, which we also know is very susceptible to um, age, uh, you know, amyloid accumulation in particular, um, that doesn't decline as much in the context of Alzheimer's disease, but uh, that's um, heavily involved in decision-making and, and we presume financial decision-making. And so what we think is that um, since uh, there's um, this age-associated neuropathology that accumulates in the default mode network, um, if it accumulates more so in the front part of the default mode network, that would actually lead to these changes in financial behavior that might make an older adult more susceptible to scammer fraud. Um, and then either concurrently or before or after, um, the time frame can actually vary a bit. Um, the posterior part of the fault mode network, which corresponds to episodic memory decline, um, can happen. And, uh, and you can have both of these things potentially uh, happening one before the other or um, at the same time. And so, uh, so that's generally what the model that we're working from right now. Um, and, that we're trying to, that's thats the specific model that we're trying to test with our current grant. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times the default mode network. Uh, yes. I think you're our first podcast guest who has mentioned that. So for our listeners who might be confused, could you just give like a brief one or two second explanation of what exactly the default mode network is? 
Uh, I, I will try. There's actually it's it, there's a lot that's been published on the default mode network. Um, it's an it's a network of brain regions that um, has been implicated in um, non-intentional thinking. Uh, it was first highlighted and identified because um, people were interested in looking at what was happening in the brain when people, um, you know, uh, were not doing something. Uh, and so this, it's generally thought to be active. Um, it was originally thought to be active um, during uh, times of daydreaming or when you're not actively thinking about something. It has since been found to be active even when you're thinking about something. But this network has been identified as being very important for um, uh, just multiple really important human functions. Um, we also know that this particular set of brain regions is very susceptible to amyloid accumulation. Um, and the posterior part declines um, in the content, in the course of Alzheimer's disease very clearly. And the anterior part does decline, but mostly in the later part. Um, so uh, that's more than two seconds, but. <laughs> that's great. So it's a little bit like kind of like the background resting activity of the brain, something like that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's uh, actually one of the ways that it's identified is through resting, um, what we call a resting fMRI, a resting functional brain MRI scan. We've been talking a little about susceptibility as as a measurement. I'm kind of curious, like in terms of the literature and where things are at, has anybody just shown straight up, you know, in an observational study that like victim rates directly differ, you know, and are associated with levels of cognitive decline? Uh, so th uh, that's a general presumption. I am not personally aware of any direct data that has actually verified this this point. Um, it's a general assumption and presumption that um, cognitive impairment is associated with greater rates of financial vulnerability. Um, but as I was saying before, we don't have really great rates in the first place. So it's hard to really tease that apart and drill down on whether or not people with you know, cognitive impairment or dementia might actually be more experiencing scammer fraud. Um, and until we honestly have better um, studies and better data on that, it, I think that's always going to be a presumption. Um, what we do have are lots of studies showing that um, if you try to give a financial decision-making measure to someone with MCI and someone with dementia, they will, um, in a stepwise fashion, do worse. Um, so the people with MCI will do worse than people without cognitive impairment, the people with dementia will do worse than the people with MCI. And, and that's a really good design, right? An actual experiment. Yeah, that would be great. Um, it, well, it would be great to have that actual data. Um, and that's, you know, it's one of the um, things that we all, everyone in the field hopes for at some point. There is a general reliance on um, sort of proxies, right? Proxies of um, uh, susceptibility, proxies of vulnerability. And there, there are a number of measures out there right now that are actively looking at that. Um, but in terms of actual data i that's that's something that i think it will take a long time to get real actual you know gold standard epidemiologic data on you know fraud you know actual fraud actual victimization what do we know from you know people talk about a dose response you know higher levels of some exposure and more outcome has have people looked at sort of levels of cognitive impairment all the way up to you know full dementia and shown sort of 
more susceptibility across levels? So we have a study showing that MCI definitely is lower than, um, than uh, people who are cognitively intact. Um, we had a direct comparison study um, showing that um, on uh, a scale of uh, susceptibility scans. Um, in terms of the Alzheimer's um, uh, patients, uh, I, I don't know if that's been looked at yet. I, Patricia Boyle at Rush might know, actually, um, you know, because I think they would be able to have the data to look at that. And I, I believe there's, um, but from what I understand, I, I just don't know if that's been done yet. I think we were sort of wondering if, if there's a point when people are, you know, get true dementia, that there'd be a point in which more caregiving would be available that might have a protective effect to some degree, you know? Yeah, you would hope. Um, but I will say, uh, and I, I do think that in general, um, the vast majority of caregivers are, um, you know, beneficial to, uh, obviously beneficial to dementia patients. Um, unfortunately, there are um, instances of caregivers also exploiting, um, uh, you know, patients with dementia you know, from a financial standpoint. And, and that's something that um, actually my colleague, Laura Mosqueda in my department is, has a grant to look at, to, to try to look at and see and try to intervene upon. What's being done right now to try to reduce financial exploitation? Uh, so I wish uh, I wish I can give you a laundry list of all the things that are being done. I, there's not as much done as there should be done, I'll say, um, in answer to that question. I, the, and I, the National Institute on Aging has a number of grants to try to understand this, this issue better. Um, you know, this topic is still not well understood. And I think there uh, I think, you know, there'll be a lot of really great data coming out in the near future. Uh, you know, one example is I have a colleague at the University of Florida who is uh, investigating the impact of email phishing on uh, older adults where they're enrolling older adults and actually sending them emails to try to fish older adults and see what they respond to. Um, so there is really great work trying to uh, develop ways that um, could help older adults um, uh, protect older adults and uh, help older adults protect themselves against financial exploitation. Um, I have colleagues at the AARP that are working on something called the Bank Safe Initiative. That's uh, where they're, they're working with the financial institutions to try to develop, get them to develop um, safeguard tools for older adults' financial well-being. Um, and I, you know, th so there's a lot of uh, different initiatives out there that are trying to attack this at different angles. I'll say, um, but you know, honestly, there needs to be more. Uh, done. And I think, you know, uh, for what it's worth, I think you guys doing um, a podcast on this topic is helpful. I think the more that this topic is talked about, it helps diminish the potential shame or stigma involved, um, the more it, it makes this topic accessible so that people can either participate in research or find out more about initiatives or report when uh, these situations happen. All of these are um, you know, address different levels of this problem that need to be addressed. And so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, I think we're all doing our part in different ways to try to address this problem. Is there some uh, mechanism for people to report, you know, are you just supposed to call the police or is there like a national helpline or something? Like, what do you actually do? Yeah, that's, so that's a great question. So there's actually a number of different um, hotlines and ways to report. So um, it, the, the Senate, our our actual Senate of our country uh, has a fraud hotline. And so that hot, hotline is 1-855-303-9470. Um, there's also an online way that you can report. It's aging.senate.gov. 
slash fraud dash hotline. Um, there's also, uh, if people experience internet fraud, um, the, uh, the um, FBI uh, maintains a website called ic3.gov, and that's, that's it in terms of a website, ic3.gov. And it's a way for um, older adults to report if they've been the victim of an internet scam or fraud. Um, and then the FTC also has a reporting uh, website. It's reportfraud.ftc.gov. And that's something that um, that people can, uh, again, you can report anonymously, you can report non-anonymously. It helps um, to identify these fraud situ scenarios and uh, people can do something about it. There was one question that I, you guys asked was, uh, you know, are they, you know, have the scams changed over the last decade? Um, and I was just going to say, you know, unfortunately, COVID scams are a big deal right now. So, um, you know, there's things like uh, people will steal personal information from vaccination cards that are posted on Facebook, um, fake charities. And, you know, what's really egregious is like funeral assistance programs like, you know, and these are all mostly targeted to older adults. And, um, and then the, the other sort of thing that's rearing its head right now is crypto. So, you know, it used to be gift cards that people would funnel money, but crypto is, you can't trace crypto, you know, and that's, uh, and so, you know, older adults are getting, are being forced to sort of put money into crypto without even knowing anything about crypto. Like they, and, you know, what I, without even knowing that it's actually, you know, they could be losing money. So I, you know, those are all things that are sort of like the new scams that are happening right now. And I, you had a question about what, what are the new things and, the thing about these scams is that they're always um, they're always changing. I mean, they're always changing with the times. They're always trying to take advantage of whatever is happening at the moment. Uh, there were huge vaccine, um, you know, before vaccines came out, there were huge vaccine, you know, or you know, treatment promises scam, you know, scams. So like you know, pills that would prevent COVID to market it to older adults because you know, and this was before anything was developed, and it's because uh, you know scammers knew that they can exploit the fear. So it's really, it's really sad. You know, I, I, I started as an Alzheimer's researcher. I, that was, that was my interest in this is trying to identify the earliest cognitive signs of Alzheimer's disease. I've always been interested in preclinical Alzheimer's disease. And so when, when this sort of presented itself, it was an interesting um, uh, topic. And then I, I've appreciated how it's not just within the health area and, in fact, you know, it could be more, uh, it, there's a lot of it that has legal interests and financial institution interests, I'll say. Like, you know, so the financial institutions don't want to see large sums of money sent to fraudsters either. So there's there's been sort of aligned interests across lots of different spheres of life that, uh, and it's a topic that I haven't really encountered that before, where you know, financial institutions are, are interested in not having people scammed or frauded also. And, so, you know, the FBI is very interested in not having people scammed or frauded. So I, I, I've been in more multidisciplinary meetings, I'll say, than I have in my prior years as someone just focusing on Alzheimer's disease. I'm constantly thinking about the policy implications. One thing I, I do not want is older adults to be um, stripped of any sort of rights or privileges. That's absolutely the last thing that we want. Um, and so um, there's just a lot of uh, implications of this work. Such an important topic and a novel area of research. Duke, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.